In this episode, Sawad Hussain spoke about bringing Arabic literature into English, developmental editing, her passion for mentoring and her new book, Jin Sapel. Sawad Hussain is a translator from Arabic whose work in 2023 was shortlisted for the Warwick Prize for Women in Translation and the Saif Gobash Bainipal Prize for Arabic Literary Translation and longlisted for the Moore Prize for Human Rights Writing. She has run translation workshops under the auspices of Shadow Heroes, Africa Writes, the Yiddish Book Center, the British Library and the National Center for Writing. Her most recent translations include Edo Souls by Stella Gaetano and Jin Sapil by Zamila Morani. Her works in progress include Women of the Rivers by Ishaga Mustafa and Behind the Sun by Bushra Al-Maktari. You can read more about her on her website sawadhusain.com. There is a link provided in the show notes to buy her translated work. So welcome to our podcast Sawad. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. I'm a big fan of of uh, Harshaniam. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now you started as a translator uh, in French, French to English. Uh, tell us about your journey into Arabic literature and Arabic translations. So yes, actually a lot of people don't know uh, Anil that I started out as a French translator unless they have, you know, um, read the essay in Violent Phenomena or um, are maybe one of my mentees who work from French. I did my undergraduate degree in French and Arabic and then proceeded to do a master's degree in Arabic literature. And uh, when I started translating in, it was 2008, I was primarily doing French texts. So I was working on samples of French novels uh, from uh, the Francophone world. So like Mauritius, maybe uh, Algeria, um, a few of the other uh, islands, uh, you, you know, uh, things that were not from France itself, but just countries where France was spoken because that was more so what I identified with. But unfortunately, you know, I had applied for a few workshops and, um, you know, was trying to make connections and it was finding it incredibly difficult to gain any sort of footing. And I was at that time also living in Johannesburg, South Africa and, um, it's, it was quite removed, and I'm not sure how it is today now in terms of, you know, how connected it is to the literary translation sort of uh, ecosystem, but I definitely think it's probably in a better place than it was, you know, back then for being a translator from French and Arabic in, in particular. So with French, I wasn't finding a way in. I was doing some commercial work, but not literary translation, and actually had uh, someone advise me, which at the time I was very upset about, which I write about in my essay, advised me to focus only on Arabic translation because they said the French market is too saturated and I won't really get far. Um, but, you know, they also just kind of said you're, you'd be better suited to translate from Arabic and, and, and also left it at that. So, you know, interpret that as you may. And uh, so then I did, I just did, I focused on Arabic translation whilst also, uh, you know, I was a full-time teacher at the time of languages and, uh, you know, got my first contract after seven years. Seven years. 
Seven years, yeah. So that's after like intensive. I was I was covering a lot of um, cultural sort of festivals, doing a lot of free samples, which I don't recommend people to do now. Um, but when I tell my mentees, you know, sometimes they, they they get discouraged if they get a few rejections. But on average, like by God's grace, most of them are getting publishing contracts within two years. I would say of having started the the career, and then I, you know, remind them it took me seven years to get my first contract, and then after that it took another, I think, two or three years before I got another book, and then the floodgates just like opened for me. So when was this? When did your first book got published? So, so if I started two thousand and eight, seven years is about seven, two thousand and fifteen. Yeah, um, it was a Jordanian science fiction novel called Jannah Al Ard by Fadi Zaghmout, which is Heaven on Earth. And it was published by um, Indie Press in Hong Kong called Signal 8 Press. Within those seven years or eight years, how many samples you produced, different samples? Countless, countless. I was doing things uh, for, you know, I was just trying to pitch uh, books to, to publishers. But at that time, I mean, publishing was even more closed than it is now, right? And uh, another, we'll probably get into this later, in what, later, why I'm so passionate about mentoring. But uh, so at that time, yeah, I was pitching works to publishers. I was trying to place excerpts with online magazines. I was attending literary festivals when I could, you know, in the Emirates, for example, and uh, having interviews with authors and then translating those for free into English and pitching those to different online outlets, uh, doing book reviews of works which were written in Arabic and works which had been translated from Arabic. So trying to really, and this is something I always encourage my mentees to do, is really make yourself into someone who has the, their finger on the pulse of what is happening in your uh, language pair. So, you know, I, I, because of those seven years, I was very well grounded. And um, I mean, I'm a specialist in contemporary Arabic literature. Classical is something I'm not familiar with and would not feel comfortable even translating. Uh, and there are specialists for that. However, for contemporary Arabic literature, especially if we're talking about women's works, like I'm your person. So, yeah, and so I think that's why finally when I did get my first publishing contract and then publishers had seen, because a lot of the times I would pitch books and they would say, you know, at the time there was this house called Bloomsbury Qatar Foundation, which has now shuttered since. But I pitched three books to them, which they ended up acquiring and they liked my sample and I did a book report. But in the end, the book would always go to somebody else because I was deemed inexperienced. I hadn't, I didn't have a book under my belt. So they liked my taste in literature but just didn't think I could be trusted with the book. You said uh, book report. What exactly is book report? Yes, yeah. So a book report, sometimes called a reader's report, is basically an analysis of the book. It's triumphs and tragedies, you know. Um, and you can have a, a summary in about 500 words, but you're also talking about the strong points and the weak points of the book, uh, who, who would be the possible market for this book, and why you think it would sell. It's kind of just giving an overview for for the editor and a lot of the times i mean editors um would commission you to do a report if the book has come to them via an agent uh or the publisher itself but for arabic we don't have many agents so a lot of the times translators are the ones which i'm sure you know you heard with your interviews with other you know translators working from languages which aren't so supported in terms of financial infrastructure such as Swedish and Korean but if you're working from like 
you know, Telugu or Arabic or, um, you know, Thai, you as the translator need to bring the book to the publisher. And so a lot of the time um, you have to do something. You ha- There's a lot of unpaid labor involved in it, uh, which is why over the years I've tried to work out ways to avoid this unpaid labor sort of black hole. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This unpaid labor. Eight, nine months ago, I heard a talk by Jessica Cohen on YouTube. That's a wonderful talk she gave. Tell us about this unpaid labor other than producing translations and book samples. What and all is involved in a literary translator today coming from a language like Arabic, let us say? Yeah. So aside, you know, there are people actually called book scouts who get paid to read books and choose titles that would be suitable for certain publishers. As a translator, I'm doing that. That's unpaid, right? Then when I find the book that I like, um, I... I have to write a general summary of it, give um, information, you know, as we discussed about the book. Usually I will do that part for free because I need to give the editor something to work with, but I've stopped doing sample translations for free. Um, Originally, I would do a sample translation of 2,000 to 3,000 words for free and then send that as a pitch pack. But now my workaround, and this is like, you know, a a sort of, um, again, it's not a secret, it's something I share with many translators working in different pairs, is that I will find an online outlet who will pay me for the excerpt. So I kind of pitch them the idea of the excerpt. I say, okay, in this part of the novel, this is happening. Does that sound like something you would be interested in? And either they'll say yes or no. And if they say yes, they'll commission me to do a sample of about 2,000 words. And then I'll translate that. It goes up on their website. And then I will include that in my pitch pack. But other unpaid labor that happens when you're a translator from a language which is not well supported is all the communication between the editor and the author. So I have to be a sort of interpreter and middle woman for that, right? So if there are queries on the manuscript from the editor, I have to translate those into Arabic and then translate the author's responses back from Arabic into English. Now, it sounds pretty straightforward, but when we were working on Black Foam, for example, with Amazon Crossing, um, Marsha Linksquilly and I and our author, Haji Jabir, he can speak English, he can understand English, but when you're talking about literature, obviously you want to be speaking in a language that you feel most comfortable with, especially if it's your own artistic work. So he chose to speak in Arabic, totally fine. And so, but that took the, the queries, it took about two and a half days of just constant messaging and translating. And then I have to transcribe the response onto the manuscript into English. So this is all like WhatsApp messages, right? And you can do it over a Zoom call, etc. But because I'm in different time zones, Compared to all of my authors, I find that WhatsApp is is the most sort of uh, conducive uh, means of communication. But then also, so after the book is published, then then all the publicity. So this is something that happens to translators, even if you are working from a bigger language pair like French, German, Spanish. A lot of the publicity will fall on you as a translator. So con- contacting bookstagrammers, contacting YouTubers to, you're just smiling here. <laughs> yeah, um, You know, I'm like a publicist in my own right to the point where I have sometimes other translators asking me, oh, can I like book a session with you? I'll pay you. Can you give me some tips on how to publicize my book? Right. Um, so that's sort of like a side thing now. That, that I'm, you know, have just started. But uh, it's a lot like as a translator, people don't, I think, always um, recognize it's more than just translating words on the page. It's it's a whole sort of bag of tricks you have you have to have at your disposal. But the good thing is the translator community is very generous um, and you will always find someone who can support you, you know, 
um, with whatever you're you're trying to do. It's very rarely now that I would be invited in in person to speak about a, a, a book that I've translated. I've been invited to a number of literary festivals, you know, to talk about my translations, but not to, let's say I was invited to like, a, I went to Newcastle, I think about 10 days ago. That's That was just to talk about literary translation in general, though. I don't really get invited for um, the book tour or anything. But what's happening right now, actually, today is the publication day for the Jin's Apple. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's very exciting. But what I the reason I bring this up is because they're doing a blog book tour, right? Which I've only ever experienced once before with Black Foam, which was with Amazon Crossing. But the blog book tour, the way it works is they've like sent all these advanced review copies to different bloggers. And for a series of about, I think it's about, it's going to be about 15 to maybe 18 days. Each day, a different blogger is releasing a oh, review on the book. Nice. Yeah, it's great. And they're, they're varying in length. Some of them are like maybe 100 words, but I read a really nice one today, which was more lengthy um, and more sort of, uh, you know, in depth and, and, and something that, that uh, I really appreciated that they took the time to write such a review. So, uh yeah, but I mean, to organize that, that's now because Neem Tree Press has a publicity person, right? So even though they're a smaller house, they have decided to invest in that. But a lot of houses I've worked with don't do any publicity. So as far as the translation ecosystem is concerned from for Arabic, Arabic to English, from 2008 to 24, 15, 16 years, right? A decade and a half. Hmm. What are the changes that you have witnessed? So many great changes and also a lot of things which have remained exactly the same. Um, so the, you know, things which have been very encouraging and just uh, motivational um, are the fact, for example, um, we have more translators now working from Arabic into English. So how many are there right now? Active translators. Active, I would say, who at least have one to two publications under their belt if we're also considering children's literature, which is a sort of booming um, area for Arabic into English translation. I would say at least 30, 35. Yeah, we have a Google um, literary translators sort of group. And, um, you know, we're trying to be a bit more organized with with us as a, as a community. But... Um, What's wonderful is, is that it's not only like diversified in terms of ethnicity, but also, you know, um, sort of socioeconomic background where people are coming from, people's interests, people are specializing in specific types of literature. Like, you know, one of my mentees is just really focused on young adult titles and graphic novels. Right. Whereas another one is more interested in um, women's autobiographies. Right. So that doesn't mean that they won't do other books. But in terms of what they really love and want to try to focus on are, are those sort of genres, which I, which I think is, is very exciting. Because when I first started out, I was just trying to do anything. I was just, you know, trying to get work. And um, I think also what's changed is now there are more publishers interested in Arabic to English literary translation. I think having seen the success of a few, you know, a few choice novels, such as um, we had Frankenstein in Baghdad by Ahmed Saddawi who is an Iraqi author. It was translated by Jonathan Wright. It made the Man Booker International Prize. Uh, I think it was uh, the shortlist. 
And so that was, you know, very exciting for Arabic literature. Then you had the, the Booker winner, you know, Marilyn Booth with Celestial Bodies and Jokhal Harti. Like I cried when they won because it was such a seminal moment for Arabic literature. I remember I was sitting just here at my kitchen table, just bawling because I feel Arabic literature so much of the time is overlooked, underappreciated, stigmatized, undervalued, you know. And so... Um, I just, uh, yeah, and more and more. So I have editors coming to me now asking like, oh, do you, do you have any titles to recommend and things like that? But st- things that have not changed, unfortunately, or where the needle has only shifted ever so slightly is funding. Um, and, and we don't have a very, we don't have a robust agenting infrastructure. Any, any organizations which are working specifically for Arabic translations? So not, I mean, here in the UK, the only sort of funding you can receive as an Arabic to English literary translator is, um, for example, um, the Sharjah Translation Initiative, they do a grant. But the only issue with that is as a publisher, so the translator can apply for cannot apply for it. Yeah, so the publisher has to go to the Sharjah Book Fair. But um, a lot of publishers I've worked with have said no, because there's like, they, they don't see it worth their time to go all the way to Sharjah for this one title. Right. If they were doing a series, maybe because it is a healthy sort of fund. But so no one I know has really taken advantage of that. Just to give you an idea. So I have about I think I've published about maybe 14, 15 books. I have 17 books under contract. I think five of those have been which are published in the UK have been supported by an English pen grant. So English pen has been instrumental in my career, really, to allow um, UK publishers to and then to encourage them to to publish Arabic literature and translation. So I really have to thank them, but it also is a precarious sort of you know way of existence to depend on this one funding body. Um, but uh, yeah, so in terms of what can be you know what needs to change is really having more uh, funding for our, we don't have anything like you know French has this thing called French Voices where you can apply with a. Uh, a, a manuscript which hasn't even been published. But actually, having said that, just I am on the, the board of trustees of this prize that has come out of Oman called the uh, Beit al-Ghasham Dar Arab Translation Prize. So I just, uh, we were just talking about this earlier, but I've just come back from the book fair in Masqat where they announced the inaugural winner. And it's a prize where you can submit a, a manuscript as an Arabic to English translator of a book that has been, sorry, it's a has to be a book that has already that has already been published in Arabic, right? But not translated into English yet. Um, and if you are shortlisted, you receive prize money. But if you win, then the book will be published with Dad Arab, which is a UK-based house here, and you're paid to translate the entire book. And then also you receive prize money of two thousand pounds. So it's a really exciting initiative for me, particularly because it kind of um, it blows open all the closed doors, the sort, the sort of very gated community, which is, you know, uh, publishing. So you don't have to, you could be a translator who has never translated before. You don't have to have any connections. You just have to have a great project and be able to ensure that the rights are available. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, that was really, I mean, that's a really encouraging initiative, but I think it needs to gain some more traction and publicity, but you can apply from anywhere in the world and actually, the next round of applications opens on March 1st. So that that's very soon. So if there are any translators, uh, you know, translating from Arabic or aspiring translators from Arabic anywhere in the world, 
you could apply to this prize. You have been very active in mentoring people, translators, and uh, active in translation workshops. I'm very passionate about mentoring because I never had a mentor. I, I found it extremely difficult to break into literary translation. And I would say the closest thing I had to a mentor was my friend, Marsha Lynx Quayley, the founder of the Arab Lit blog, right? She was someone who was just continually being like, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? But I never had someone who was, you know, she wasn't practicing literary translation at the time. Um, so I never really had one. And so as a, as a result, I'm very, very passionate about mentoring translators uh, who are working from Arabic to English um, or, you know, who find themselves perhaps on the outside of the publishing sphere geographically or otherwise for whatever reason. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I mentor, I think currently, I, I mentor officially through usually the National Center for Writing. I've been doing, um, they have these uh, annual mentorships uh, for a number of different languages. And I've been doing their Arabic one, I think for maybe about three years now. I think this is the third or fourth round. But I informally mentor um, about, I think, up to 12 translators working from different yeah, languages. But it doesn't mean that I'm always very quick to get back to them. I just have them all on, on, web, on WhatsApp. But um, we generally try to check in once every two, every two months. And uh, initially, I was only focusing on Arabic to English. But now I've branched out to you know, translators working from Kiswahili or um, other languages. Uh, through, you know, different workshops I've been running where I think I've identified where it's someone who's extremely talented but just needs that sort of support to get their foot in the door. So much about about publishing, unfortunately, we keep coming back to this, is about connections. Um, and it's, it's taken me many, many years to make those connections and to build those relationships. And a lot of times editors are, are quite, understandably so, you know, but they're quite sort of um, conservative in who they will work with. And they would only consider uh, working with someone new if, if it is, um, you know, ushered in by somebody they know. So, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that's kind of what, um, I, why I do mentoring. And about Shadow Heroes. Tell us about Shadow Heroes. Uh, yeah, Shadow Heroes, Heroes was um, co-founded by my dear friend Gitanjali Patel and her um, uh, co-founder Sophie Lewis, who translates from French. It it really has taken off, um, and what it is is introducing translation as a life skill to young adults, you know, teenagers, um, in in their schools through a, a me through the medium of translation workshops. So one that I co-ran with a friend of mine, Nariman Youssef, who is currently the Bridges Center for Literary, Literary Translation resident. So we co-ran a workshop on translating graphic novels and comics, uh, Arabic comics in particular. Actually, we were focusing on Bina Muhammad's work, who is an Egyptian graphic novelist um, who had an online uh, series about uh, a female superhero at the time countering like patriarchy in Cairo. And, and the like. And she just won the Warwick Prize for Women in Translation this year for her graphic novel, which is called Shubbek Lubbek. And uh, it's basically um, means like, your wish is my command. Okay, so it was published by Granta. It's a highly su successful graphic novel. And it's just really exciting to see the trajectory of, of Dina. But 
as an aside, so we uh, co-led that um, comics workshop and it really is just letting young people know that whether they have a home language, which sometimes is undervalued, you know, uh, for me, for example, growing up speaking uh, Urdu and English at home, Urdu was never really valued in a professional capacity for me until I started working um, uh, for uh, a place here here in Cambridge. And uh, so I guess what I would say is just kind of showing people that whatever your home language, there is high value to it. I think that's something that I was lacking growing up. It was very much emphasis on French and you know, uh, the European languages are the ones of prestige, when in fact, our languages are just as much, uh, you know, um, um, valuable and and, and, uh, of of note. You wrote an article about developmental editing, right? What exactly is that? Right. So uh, developmental editing is a sort of phenomenon that I have seen in my past four books, which has come become much more common. It's, it is very commonplace for a manuscript originally written in English. When you're editing, you will have original, uh, the, the phases are developmental editing, which is where you're changing things such as, you know, narrative pace, maybe the scene, maybe motivations of characters, things on the level of the story. But usually for translation and uh, the way it works is like, yeah, the book has already been published in Arabic and I've translated it into English and any changes which are brought up during the developmental editing stage, we do do it in consultation with the author. That ends up making the English translation different to the original Arabic. So usually after developmental editing, as I'm sure you're fully aware, then you have like line editing where they're, uh, you know, looking at the use of language and then you have proofreading. But the reason I'm explaining this is kind of like a pyramid, if you think from the bottom upwards, right, where the base is developmental editing, where the most sort of changes are happening. And as you progress in the in the editing process, it becomes less and less uh, changes. But the reason I, uh, you know, I appreciate your question is a lot of translators just think when you translate a work and submit it, they'll come back and like edit a few verbs or maybe, you know, be like you've overused this adjective, you know, everybody has their darlings that you have to kill. Um, but uh, more and more, it's developmental editing comes back where, you know, for the, for example, for the Jin's Apple, we added in an epilogue, we changed the ending, um, which I know, and we changed the ending. Yeah, which, which uh, you know, a lot of people, I mean, I mentioned this at a talk last week, one of the people were like, why, why would you do that? And, um, the reason is because, and I won't tell you what the ending is now, since everybody has to read the book and find out, but the, the publisher found that the ending was not satisfactory. They wanted it to be a little bit, they wanted some more closure. But the author, Jamila, said that she had left the ending open because she wants to write a sequel, right? Um, but the, the publisher was very assertive in making clear that the ending needs to be different. And so what we did is Jamila then sort of rewrote an ending, which then we, you know, translated and the editor edited that. And that was the ending. Now it's just a, like a page and a half's worth of difference. It's not like a whole different, you know, denouement to the story, but it is a different ending. How often does it happen in these translations? I think, like I said, in the past four books I've done, um, I mean, Edo Souls, we didn't have any developmental 
editing, but in black form we did. We had to flesh out um, some of the sexual tension in the book because, you know, the publish- the editors um, at Amazon Crossing didn't think that was uh, clear enough. And some of the characters' motivations, one of the, because it is a book that is based in sus- suspense, they wanted some of the scenes to be a bit tighter, not in terms of language, but in terms of the action. So we, you know, they wanted to speed up some of the, some of the action there. So Black Phone, we had developmental editing. It's definitely much more commonplace and I've heard from friends working from Korean also that it, it does happen so it's not unheard of but it does raise a lot of red flags in that I have worked with authors you know on both ends of the spectrum so one time I was working with an author and they said just do whatever you need to do to make the book sell okay. and I said at what cost I was like hold on here you know like this is your book we're not doing this just to make books sell and um, and I've had also authors who have said, no, like, don't change anything. I'm not going to agree to any changes. The book is as it is. This is how I intended it to be, you know, leave it as it is. So with both, you know, types of authors, I've had to sort of negotiate and cajole them because um, you have to keep in mind, unfortunately, like literary translation, uh, publishing, it's, it's a business. Publishers need to make money. They're, they they are, have spent, you know, a lot of money to get the book translated um, to get it printed, distri- distribution, etc., and and if you want them to keep, you know, coming back to translate more Arabic literature, it doesn't have to be to me. But I'm saying in general, the books need to sell. I was reading uh, David Bellow's uh, book the other day. We interviewed him. Yeah, I heard your your episode with him. A fish in my ear. It's such a great book. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. There was an entire chapter dedicated to translating humor. What has been your experience in translating humor? How challenging is that? I think it's one of the most challenging things. And I think if someone says it's not challenging, it's perhaps because they're not doing it properly. That's my opinion. Um, I think this actually, I I translated a a collection of short stories by the Libyan author Najwa bin Shatwan called Catalog of a Private Life. Najwa as as a person is highly sarcastic um, very funny, a lot of sort of dark humor. She has gone, she has had a, a very, you know, tragic series of events in her life, but still makes light of them um, in her writing. When I was translating that short story collection, I was so at sea, you know, I love the book, but I realized not much of the humor is coming across. A lot of it is steeped in cultural, social cultural, you know, sort of, um, knowledge which is embedded in a Libyan reader but not for an English language reader whichever country you're you're reading from right even within the Arabic literary sphere Libyan literature is at at uh, at a distance it is you know it takes some sort of uh it's it's not uh, it takes some digging to understand it what ended up happening is when I was translating that short story collection I did a lot of research into how to translate humor to the point then where I ended up teaching a course at the British Library on how to translate humor because I had done so much of it. Uh, My key advice and the the thing I can take away if I am to sort of distill it into one point for our listeners is when you're translating humor, they say that you have sort of these two scripts running, like two sort of, um, I guess, like uh, currents, right? The, the, The first current is what's being, you know, what the expectation is in the joke, you know, when someone says like, knock, knock, like what, what is the expectation? And then 
The second part or the second sort of current or script, if you want to call it, is how that is subverted. And in the subversion, that is the humor. So when you're dissecting any joke, you have to make sure like you're setting up the expectation, which for different cultural audiences is different. And then how do you subvert that? So or how is it subverted? So you need to kind of pull that apart in order to put it back together. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I love translating humor. And a lot of people think that Arabic literature is not funny, but it is funny. Um, it's just not enough of it coming across. Everybody thinks it's tragedy and like, you know, um, oppression and, and, and all of that. But that's because what editors are, are putting out there, you know, um, I have had editors come to me saying like, oh, can you give me a story of a woman who is oppressed and then, you know, gets, you know, finds herself. And you know, I see you, you're just giggling away. And the, it's just, it is, it's laughable, but people still want to play into those, those tropes and those, you know, a lot of the times it's like, yes, I want money, but not at this, not at this like expense. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I want to translate a book, but I'm not going to translate. I'm not going to help you find that kind of book because I, that's not, you know, I think we can all agree that's 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 a, a waste. No, I was, yeah. <laughs> I was going through about your choice of books for translation on your website. What is the best part is that you have picked up novels to translate from writers in different countries: Kuwait, Jordan, Palestine, Lebanese, Syria, Oman, Yemen, Eritrea, Sudanese, Algerian. Is it a conscious choice? Yeah, well, firstly, again, I'm very humbled. You've, you've just spent all this time thinking of these questions, and I really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's very much um, a purposeful, deliberate choice. I, when I was starting literary translation, and, w- and also when I was studying Arabic, because I'm not a native speaker of Arabic, right? I think, I'm not sure if we mentioned earlier, but I'm Pakistani, and I learned Arabic, you know, when I was 17, so at much later age, like stage in, in life. I lived in Pakistan for about seven years. Um, and then I was living in different countries around the world. Um, and But my, my mother's still in Karachi, so I go back every year. You know, so it very much is my home and, and you know, where I'm from. So um, I was going to say that... Uh, when I was studying Arabic and Arabic literature, we just had a, a series of, um, you know, Egyptian works, you know, put on us. And so by the time I was done with my degree, I was really fed up with Egyptian literature. And I was just kind of no offense to, you know, Egyptian literature, but I was just really tired of it. Um, and so there are over, you know, there's at least 24 countries which uh, recognize Arabic as their official language and other countries where it's a secondary language. Um and where are those literatures, right? So for me, what I set out to do is to bring literatures into English from countries where even within the Arabic literary sphere, they're being marginalized, right? So Eritrea has a rich history of novels written in Arabic, but you wouldn't know about it because nobody really talks about it, right? Um, very similar with Yemen. There are so many you know, talented Yemeni authors, but they're just not making their way across into English. So that's one of the sort of criteria when I'm looking for a book is something that, it, you know, we haven't really heard from before in the Anglosphere or read a lot of, um, aside from it being like, you know, so, something, a book which has an, an sort of a, an urgency to it or an et- eternal quality to it, where it's a book that will last. 
as I've said, it doesn't mean that I won't make an exception to this rule. So, for example, you know, um, the Lebanese book that I have done, a lot of Lebanese literature has been translated, but it was a YA novel. So for me, that is something more unusual because we don't have a lot of Arabic literature being translated into English, which are middle grade novels, which means like for 10 to 12 year olds or YA, which is young adult for 12, you know, I would say to 16, 17 year old. So everything I do, there's a sort of, there's a, a reason, a rhyme and a, yeah, a reason to it. Yeah. Now we will come to violent phenomena. Okay. <laughs> the grand finale. <laughs> yeah. Of violent okay. phenomena. So, it was reading your article in Violent Phenomena. I think that was about eight nine months ago. What was your reaction? It was it was almost surreal for me. Really? really? <laughs> yes. Why? <laughs> no, it is so unbelievable. Those experiences, I I I, I just I just can't imagine such experiences a translator can go through. First, tell us about the book. I read the book through and through, the entire, all articles I read, Anton Harris and everybody's, right? Um, tell us about the book, Violent Phenomena, and uh, tell us about your particular experience. So, yeah, Violent Phenomena is um, a collection of uh, essays uh, on the act of translation, primarily by translators of color, and it was co-edited by Jeremy Tiang and Kavita Banot, and uh, they had it's published by Tilted Access Press, and I've heard, which is you know really encouraging, that is being used by a lot of universities uh, in their sort of uh, course texts to give a different view on translation to you know perhaps one which has been pre-established over the many years, you know, basically by older white men um, of what translation is and what does it mean to be a translator. And I'm not negating their experience. I'm just saying there is another experience. There's a different way of being as a, a, of being a translator in this world. And um, so they actually did a, a sort of call out. They were just asking people for proposals. And I wasn't going to do it because I don't, I usually just translate. I used to write a lot when I was younger and I stopped writing. But actually my friend Anton Herr is the one who, um, you know, and, and my friend Claire um, Richards, who also translates from Korean, uh, they both encouraged me to send in a proposal. And so I did. And then it was accepted. And then I was very surprised and pre- proceeded to write this essay, which nearly ended my career. Um, so it's, it's an essay which is told in episodes of sort of uh, absurd experiences I have had as you know a translator uh, of color working from Arabic um, into English uh, with either publishers or editors. And the initial draft of that um, essay, I remember I, when when my husband read it before I sent it in, he, he looked at me and he said, do you still want to translate? You, you're burning so many bridges here. He's like, someone can just go to your website and figure out what you're talking about. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I don't think it's like, I was like, I'm just kind of telling it how my experience was. And he's like, yeah, but at the same time, like, it's a very small industry. And, you know, sure, these have, this has been your experience, but it don't let it sort of, you know, um, define your impression of a particular editor or a publishing house. You know, everybody's on a certain, he's much more full of grace than I am, you know. <laughs> um, and so, so. 
after I sent that initial draft to them, I then retracted it. I wrote to the editors and said, I don't feel comfortable with what I've sent in. I'm feeling quite anxious about it. Can I rewrite it? Um, and, and thankfully, Jeremy and Kavitha were both very generous and said, yes, you can rewrite it. So I did rewrite it and I took out, you know, I think key identifiers, but left it a little bit so you can connect the dots if you are familiar with my work and my career. Um, and I didn't write it in a way to to tar anybody, you know, with a brush, but it's more so just to make people aware, like, this is still happening, you know, and I am, uh, for example, you know, in one of the episodes we talked about, uh, I've written about is, is um, being asked to uh, be, uh, anyways, I, yeah, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> it's just, it just kind of goes to show, I mean, I, I just recommend people read it, but it's just, um, I don't know. I never really thought I would talk about it, about, about any of those experiences. And after having written it, I, the response I've had from other translators working from even different language pairs has just been very encouraging that encouraging in that they have appreciated me writing about it, whether because they weren't aware of it or because they themselves have experienced something similar. But at the same time, that's disheartening that it's, you know, that it happens to more than one person. Um, and yeah, so I mean, the experiences just kind of range the gamut from being, you know, stereotyped as, as, a, as a translator of color. So you can't translate a European language to even if I'm someone who's mid-career um, because I look younger um, or are more energetic that perhaps I am not as well informed or experienced in my craft. Um, you know, there's just this like a range of, of, of things. And um what I would say is, is you know, as time has gone on, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I have still had some unfortunate incidents with editors, but overall it seems to have improved. Another time. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what, 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 what that is um, a reflection of, but it just goes to show that I think the, the issue stems from, for me, is that the, the publishing industry is not diverse enough. I think, yeah, people are always talking about, oh, like, you know, majority of like the Authors Guild in the US released this report that shows that more than 80% of literary translators are white, right? And that's in the US, active literary translators. Now in the UK, they have not conducted a similar survey. But for me, there's always such an emphasis on, okay, yeah, we need to have more diverse literary translators, but we also need to have more diverse, you know, um, bodies, in the publishing sphere. Um, and it's not diverse just in terms of ethnicity. I'm talking about like able bodies or neurodivergent or, you know, different socioeconomic, like, uh, you know, um, sort of strata. I just think that then you need more people with different experiences because edit, ed, like when editors acquire books, it's so arbitrary. It's their personal taste. Um, and yes, the publishing house has an overall ethos and mission. But when it comes down to it, it's it's about what that specific editor likes. And if all the editors have very similar sort of interests, you're only publishing a certain kind of book. Uh, so I guess that's, yeah. The funniest part was that uh, cover page, desert cover. Okay, I can tell that one, yeah. So that was for... Um, that was for a book I was working on where it's, it's a collection of, of short stories from Libya. I'm not giving the title because you can figure it out if you go to my, my page. 
but uh, at the time, so we were, we were talking about possible covers and the editor just said like, how about we just, you know, let's just put a desert on the cover. This is in an email. <laughs> and I received, you're just giggling away. <laughs> People can't see you. Oh, it's so funny. I just received the email. I'm just sitting with it. And I read it again. And then I, I wrote back and I said, but there aren't any deserts in the book. <laughs> like this is, there's, there's no mention of a desert, right? Um, and so then, uh, then there was there was silence. There was radio silence. And then I heard back from a different person in the house later on after I was following up, like what is happening with the cover? That oh, that was just like made in jest. It was just like an offhand comment, you know. And then and to myself, I'm like, no, it wasn't. It was a serious suggestion. Um, that because it's a piece of Arabic literature, obviously there are palm trees and camels and deserts in it. Uh, yeah, it, you know, which made me realize because we had another issue, you know, w- w- with the cover of, of that book, which I won't go into now. But as a translator, it makes you realize that you sh- in your contract, and this is something I do now, should have a clause that stipulates you as a translator have a say in the cover. Um, a lot of the times I would assume the best, you know, intentions of the publisher in that, oh, I'm sure they're going to pick a cover that's very much, you know, um, chiming with the essence of the book and the message of the book and, you know, the feeling of the book. But a lot of the time, unfortunately, that's not the case. And you need to advocate for the author and the book. And so now I stipulate that, you know, translators should be able to see the cover before it goes to print. It has happened before where, you know, just told at the last minute, this is the cover and it's too late to change it. And I'm just like, what? Um, and the author was also very upset in that instance. And then you should have a say in it. And also a lot of the times now I go on the sort of front foot and I, I um, give the details of a cover artist that I think would be good for the book. So I did that for Edo Souls. So for Edo Souls, which is a South Sudanese, um, you know, sort of epic of, of, of motherhood during the time of civil war in, in Sudan, written by Stella Gatano which has come out with uh, Daedalus books. I put them in touch with Yasmin Abdullah, who is a Sudanese uh, artist who I had just come across on Instagram. And I was really taken with her work. And I thought that also her sort of, um, she, a lot of her works uh, revolve around the idea of nationhood and like being fragmented from one's nation and, and womanhood as a prism, like sort of, you know, through which we see that. And so that's definitely what Edo's Souls is. And so I asked her if she would be open to doing cover art for the book and put her in contact with the publisher. And she read the book, which is also really helpful because, you know, sometimes you have artists who can't read the book, which is fine. And you give them a sort of cover brief. But she came up with two fantastic um, options. And we went we chose one, um, which is now the cover of Edo's Souls. And for me, that's so much better with me that we have you know, uh, cover artists who uh, are perhaps more familiar with the culture or somehow more connected to the book other than just like some random cover artist sitting in, you know, no offense to like whatever Silicon Valley or Minnesota or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Someone who's very established and who can, who, who is only contacted because they're experienced and they may come up with a lovely cover, but I think it's much more impactful to have someone who, who, you know, can, I think, just advocate for the book through their art in a much more meaningful way. In fact, I read the book. You read Edo Souls? 
Oh my yeah, god, I what just did loved you it. think? It's beautiful. See, there are certain things uh, which are even common in India in rural part of it. Especially the to ward out the evil. They will give the names which are repelling, right? That is common in India too. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't um realized that. The rural part of it, right, where she lives in the childhood, right? There are a lot of uh, information about the culture right cultural nuances uh, how difficult was it uh, for you to translate all that lot of terminology and lot of cultural yeah in terms of translation this is a great question in terms of the actual you know act of translation it was very similar to other books i've worked on because a lot of the books that i do work on i have to do an immense amount of research because each time it's like a different culture country uh, or time period or culture or or part of that country but what was difficult about it but likely i had the author on hand stella was extremely extremely generous with her time and explanations is that sometimes a lot of that information was not available on the internet when i'm trying to understand how a dance actually looks you know for one of the dances i found a youtube video of it but other times one of for one of the funeral rites i couldn't find the garb like what exactly are they wearing so even though it's explained in the arabic one of my someone i forget had mentioned to me or advised me that when you're translating you really have to make sure that the visual like the picture comes across and sometimes that requires you to add more to the english than what is originally there and it's not it's not a stealth gloss it's not like over explaining the culture it's just making sure the picture itself is crisp it came out really well that part of it uh, i thought it's it was very difficult to translate it came out really well thank you oh i really appreciate it yeah so i must really thank the author stella she was my go to sort of person in in asking her to you know explain a lot of sort of uh cultural you know um elements of the book and as a result the english translation is now being used as a reference for the german translator so the german translator got in contact with me and was like oh can you please send me an advanced copy of the english because i want to refer to it before we go on to the book that published today what are you currently working on i'm currently working on a few things but i guess the key thing that i would really like to share is i'm pitching some um why a palestinian fiction and um middle middle grade palestinian fiction so i'm pitching um i can actually i can show you the book but the but but the yeah but the listeners won't see it but it's here so um we have this gorgeous cover it's called the uh, city al filistinia why i'm focusing on palestinian literature for young readers is that a lot of the you know what i've noticed is a lot of families are shying away from talking about palestine or don't know how to talk about palestine right whereas literature is a place where people can go to learn things even if we want to you know you don't want to over politicize it whatever your your stance is you know but i guess what i want to say is it's really important to translate this literature for young readers to to get them talking and thinking about you know a, a world outside themselves and so that's what i'm currently working on and um i've just finished also uh two excerpts for the common magazine in the us which is coming out in in april they have a spring edition of literature from the african continent written in arabic so countries such as chad eritrea south sudan um and the like but um yeah that's that's about it now let's talk about uh, the book uh, came out today 
Zinsapo. Zinsapo is uh, my second YA novel. So again, young adult fiction, which is written by Jamila Morani, who is an Algerian author. And it's a murder mystery set in the Abbasid era in uh, Iraq. So Abbasid era is like 580 um, to about 780 in uh, during the caliphate of uh, uh, oh, Harun al-Rashid. And the main character, Nardin, is uh, 12 years old. And this is no spoiler, but on the opening pages of the book, her father is murdered before her eyes. He's the court scribe and was in possession of a very uh, important manuscript that the, the, the caliph wants. And the rest of the book is Nardin trying to figure out who killed her father, how to get revenge. She falls in love along the way and also, you know, manages to um, pursue her dreams of being in the medical field. So, so far there's been really a wonderful response to it in that someone, you know, one of the book bloggers today um, wrote about how the majority of her reading experience for YA has been primarily based in a world where the characters have been Western, uh, contemporary, um, you know, white. And so it was very interesting for her to read about a different time period told from a female point of view um, with a murder mystery. You know, it's very much a page turner. It's, it's, it's quite short. Um, so if anybody is interested in getting into, you know, um, Arabic literature and translation or you just want a good book to read uh, for you have, you know, children, um, you know, but also why I think there was this, um, there was a st- statistic release that a lot of YA is actually predominantly read by adults. So, you know, like the Harry Potter series was wildly popular, which is YA, uh, but it was popular with adults. So even though it is a YA book, a lot of adults are enjoying it. I think it's because YA is quite escapist, you know, it lets you, it's also a sort of safe world. It's not um, you know, there will be things that go wrong, but it's not as um, harmful as when you're reading an adult book, perhaps. Um, so, yeah, but that's the book that's out today. And I'm really excited for it. It was a very long time in the making, a very long journey. And I'm exceptionally grateful to Mean Tree Press for taking the chance on on that book. It's Jamila's first um, book translated into English. It's only also her second book ever written. Um, and so she's very much a sort of um, debut author in, in that respect. Is it a graphic novel? Or? It's not a graphic novel. It's, it's just, um, it, it, it's uh, about, I mean, I can, I can show you a, a copy, but the listeners wouldn't be able to see it. But it's just over 100 pages. There's, there's no pictures in the book. It's just, it's just words. Um, and that's actually something that the editor, now that you mention it, is considering about and considering how to adapt it to be a graphic novel because she thinks that it would do well as, as a graphic novel. Yeah. This is like unorthodox, but I have a question for you, Anil, which I hope you won't edit out, um, which is why did you start this podcast and where do you want it to go from here? Okay, I'll answer the second part first. We have a target of... Uh talking to translators in 56 languages now 44 12 more to go see we have started this podcast uh, speaking to writers in telugu literature my mother tongue 
we have done 50 of them and uh, we continue to do that talk about books basically this podcast is about books then we moved on to translations so all those uh, uh, episodes which we have done in telugu of course they are in telugu language lot of episodes and for the last one year or so we moved on to translations we continue to do telugu podcast episodes as and when some interesting book comes up and uh, other than that it will be a translation focused podcast from now on we have been talking to translators in different languages now once this 56 gets over probably we will go back uh, to the same translator and bother them as and when the new book comes an interesting new book comes <laughs> so basically the short answer is it will be translation focused oh fantastic Thank you Uttavad for your time. Thank okay, you very much. Okay, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye.